Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Yeah. So let's get settled. Hey, so um, this is uh, Gautam uh, Prabhu uh, from uh, Tamil Nadu, uh, India, uh, south of India, um, based in uh, Chennai, uh, formerly known as Madras. Um, and uh, I'll just share a, a little bit about him and uh, then hand it over to him. And then after he uh, shares, um, we'll have a conversation, discussion. Uh, so um, uh, Gautam uh, is um, uh, on the uh, exec- an executive member of the um, International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which is... Uh, uh, a very wonderful um, gathering of um, engaged um, uh, leaders from around the world. Uh, Sulak Sivaraksha uh, is the uh, the main leader. Alan Sanaki, local um, uh, local member here, and uh, they gather uh, periodically and discuss how how the Dharma can most effectively. Uh, be expressed in uh, making this a better world uh, and uh, put on big uh, international conferences. Um, and his main work in uh, in Chennai, um, he's with two different organizations that he is the, uh, the leader of. One is called the uh, Tamil uh, Buddhist Society, uh, which, as I said before, is particularly um, supporting Dalits, D-A-L-I-T-S, Dalit, uh, which is a word that um, refers to uh, formally uh, known as untouchables, the untouchable caste. Um, And it was interesting, uh, um, uh, Gautam and I spent some time today, and I I asked him, I've, I've known the word Dalit for a long time, but I never knew exactly what it meant. And Dalit means uh, broken. Isn't that interesting? And that is a step up from untouchable. But they they still, that is how they refer to themselves. So you can just imagine the internalized identities that they have and have had um, and for generations, many generations. And in, um, what was it, 1956, or, uh, that uh, um, a, a great uh, inspiring leader, uh, Ambedkar, um, 
was um, uh, was an Indian man who saw that Buddhism, after studying, I mentioned it briefly last week in the talk, uh, that after studying all the different uh, world religions, saw that Buddhism um, held the greatest opportunity for the untouchables to get out of the caste system and uh, because actually in the Buddha, that was one of the things that he specifically wanted to create, a system where uh, there was no separation as far as um, um, qualifications uh, and it cut through all the caste. One who is nobly born uh, is uh, steps out of that stratified um, system. Uh, but um, so Ambedkar um, had um, conducted a mass conversion of I think three million uh, Dal- uh, Dalits have have uh, eight hundred thousand. Okay, Senator. So um, and he, he can talk to to you more about it uh, when when he um, has the mic. So that's one. Um, uh, one organization, the Tamil Buddhist uh, Society, where teaching practitioners uh, the Dharma and practice. And then there is a, a more social engagement side of things uh, where he is the uh, founder and director of uh, an organization called the Foundation um, uh, for uh, Sacred, uh, of, of Sacred, um, majesty, um, foundation of his sacred majesty. Yeah, F H S M, foundation for his uh, foundation of his sacred majesty, and his sacred majesty refers to King Ashoka, who. Um, was one of the um, uh, really most responsible for Buddhism continuing to thrive. It had almost uh, uh, died out, but uh, King Ashoka, Emperor Ashoka, uh, King Ashoka, who uh, the story of Ashoka was uh, he was a, a fierce warrior and he was known as Ashoka the Wicked. Uh, and then he had a mass conversion after having, uh, after one particularly bloody uh, battle. There was carnage all over, and he saw uh, through the battlefield uh, an ascetic monk, very, um, very dignified and at peace with his begging bowl. And he said, "How is it that?" I'm me, I'm so powerful, and I'm not happy after all of this carnage, and this man is happy. And why is he so happy? And so he asked him, and he took the teachings and became, he had a complete conversion inward and outward, and became um, the, the great... Uh, promoter of Buddhism and was became uh, known as uh, Ashoka the Wise and Dhammashoka, and uh, it was really a, a glorious period for his reign. Uh, and um, and so this foundation is about um, 
it's the secular side of things, just like we have secular mindfulness and uh, and there's Buddha Dharma. Well, this is uh, he does, um, Gotam and that organization uh, promotes various programs um, outside of the Buddhist jargon that is um, can be available for. Uh, improving a lot of anyone, whether they're Buddhist, Muslim, or uh, lots of engaged uh, social action uh, programs. So um, with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, and uh, please share your work. Um, first of all, I would like to say Namo Buddhaya. This is the usual greetings that we have among the Buddhist communities in India because we believe that everybody has the Buddha nature inside. So I would like to greet everyone as Namo Buddhaya. Thank you, James, and my dear brothers and sisters. I'm really, really happy to be here, first of all. Uh, before we start any Buddhist programs, we tend to have confessions because first confession is, I'm sorry that I'm late. I'm 10 minutes late, and uh, in, in our Sangha, people who come late, especially our students, they sneak very cleverly inside, and then they position themselves in such a place that they can say that, oh, yes, I was on time. <laughs> yeah. So I would like to confess. And the second one is uh, I had a brief discussion with James. My English is pathetic. So I would like to confess in advance, if at all my grammar and my pronunciation is wrong, please correct me. Uh, the third confession is also very beautiful. The kind of hospitality I receive from the Americans, especially from the Buddhist community, is immense, and I'm really, really happy. So these are the three confessions that I would like to make. and. Uh, James talked about a few things and he did brief <clears throat> certain things about the social aspect of the Indian society and also he talked about how we saw Buddhism as a religion for empowerment um, many of you might have heard about the structural violence that is still existing in our country uh, much before Dr. Ambedkar there were several other leaders who also spoke about Buddhism and who also talked about the issues related to social discrimination in our society. So every century we see this kinds of uh, uh, upsurge of movements that has emerged to address the issue related to liberty, equality and fraternity. I also have to acknowledge the fact that it is America which helped us to connect historically with Buddhism. It's quite surprising, isn't it? The Theosophical Society, which was established in the year 1858, was the first to talk about Buddhism in our land and connect the untouchables with Buddhism. It was Henry Steele Olcott and Madame Blavatsky who, after establishing the Theosophical Society in the south of India, who said that the untouchables were the former Buddhists. It was quite shocking for many of us in India. Of course, I don't belong to the 19th century. But when I grew up as a young kid, when I was around 10 years 
of age, <clears throat> I happened to meet one monk. And I told that what is Buddhism? Buddhism is from China. So what are you doing? Are you from China? Then he was like quite surprised. And then this monk asked me, why do you think Buddha to be a Chinese? Because our education system has been modified in such a manner that we tend to see Buddha as someone from China. All that we remember about China is Buddhism and Kung Fu. Apart from these two, we don't have anything to you know, think about when, we, when something like China comes into the picture. And then this master, it's a very good uh, uh, friend of my father, he said that Buddha is from India and he's an Indian. So that was the first time I came to know that Buddha was from India. And then <clears throat> the second journey for me was, uh, I'm, I belong to a family which is atheistic. We don't believe in any religion. And in the 80s, we, uh, my parents converted to Buddhism. And so I became a Buddhist. So we all grew as identity Buddhist. Uh, we never thought of anything beyond identifying ourselves as Buddhist. So it is quite ironical, someone says that I'm a born Buddhist. So we will have these kinds of uh, terminologies in India. If you meet someone, they'll say that I'm a born Buddhist. And in the year 2000, I came to know what is actually Buddhism. So the first time I happened to get introduced to Buddhism was through Dr. Ambedkar's writings. Uh, he wrote his, this famous, very famous book called Buddha and his Dhamma. And in Buddha and his Dhamma, he very clearly articulates the purpose of Dhamma. So when I first read the book, I was having lots of preconceived notions. The first and foremost notion that I had, preconceived notion that I had was Buddha is a god. And second, that you know it's going to be like any other religion. It's going to be extremely hierarchical, institutionalized. And then the third thing that I thought would be something like, which is infallible like the way we say Quran or Bible, which becomes so infallible, there is no question of modifying it. So I had these kinds of preconceived notions before reading Buddha and his Dhamma. But when I read Buddha and his Dhamma, I was so shocked. I also felt ashamed that why I did not read this book, which was lying in my house for more than 10 years. And each time I see this book, which my father quite often says that when you have time, please read. So I always tell him, my father, I'm very busy. <laughs> so we always say this, you know, we are busy. And, and then I was feeling very ashamed and how I missed this book. Because in one of the definitions that Dr. Ambedkar gives, especially talking about the purpose of Dhamma, is to maintain purity of life is Dhamma. That touched my heart so, so deeply because I never came across such an explanation. And then he goes further. How do you develop this purity of life? And then he says, you have to develop what is called as purity of mind, purity of speech, and purity of action. 
Then I started pondering how one can develop purity of mind. And then I came to know that it is through meditation. That was the first time I realized that meditation plays a significant role in human beings, among the human society. It's a huge contribution, which people like me were so ignorant and we ignored the relevance of meditation. So I would say that I became a Buddhist only in the year 2000. That was the first time I can call myself as a Buddhist. Before that, I was just living as a Buddhist in identity. But this identity is also very important for us because uh, James was referring about Ashoka and also about Ambedkar's contribution. And he used this term called Dalit. Uh, the word Dalit is derived from this uh, language called Pali. It's, it's, uh, it's called Dalita. Dalita means broken. So broken in the sense, broken in terms of your clan, in terms of your own history. So the whole history is broken. And when somebody says... Uh, from India, if he is a Buddhist, especially from the former untouchable community, and if he addresses himself as a Buddhist, it only means how important it is for him to identify as a Buddhist, because there was no identity at all for this community for the last 3,000 years. This community was never considered to be part of the society. It was always ostracized, it was kept outside the village. They lived in the village, but they were never considered being part of the village. And that's the reason why I had to show sympathy on my own brothers and sisters who called call themselves as Buddhist because they have been denied such an identity for centuries. <clears throat> At the same time, I also felt deeply that we have to emphasize and practice. So when I saw, when I read about Dr. Ambedkar's contribution, uh, especially about his conversion, historic conversion that took place in the year 1956 on October 14th. There were 500,000 people who embraced Buddhism in a city called Nagpur. And Nagpur is exactly in the center of India. And then after two days, on the 16th of October, there were 300,000 people who embraced uh, Buddhism in a nearby, nearby uh, city called Chandrapur which is like three hours from Nagpur. So this 500 and 300, which is 800,000, played a significant role in the whole Indian society, especially giving humongous amount of motivation for the untouchables to embrace Buddhism. So our thought of embracing was connected with the first teachings of the Buddha, especially addressing the three classifications of Dukkha, that is suffering. So we have the Dukkha Dukkha, suffering is suffering. So this community has been facing enormous amount of social suffering, which other communities like the so-called upper caste or dominant caste did not face, uh, could be classified in other sufferings like the Viparinama Dukkha or Sankhara Dukkha. But the first Dukkha for us was very important to come out because it is that social structure which was limiting the scope of developing. So all the Dalits who have embraced Buddhism have embraced primarily because of the reason that they wanted to liberate themselves from the social suffering. 
So there's a huge population which got embraced towards Buddhism. And uh, during the time of Ashoka, Ashoka was also one of the greatest kings who presided mass conversion. And that mass conversion also took place in Nagpur. And that's the reason why Dr. Ambedkar chose Nagpur as the important place to embrace Buddhism in 1956. But in between Ashoka and Dr. Ambedkar, Dr. Dr. Ambedkar embraced Buddhism in 1956, we have the 19th century's contribution, where I talked about Henry Seal Alcott and few other leaders from America, and also generous contributions from Mary Foster, who developed the Mahabodhi Society. And Mary Foster is from America. So the greatest contribution came from the 19th century. And when I started reading about this 19th century history of India, I could quite well connect with Buddhism because in the south of India, we are more connected in cultural anthropological aspect. Uh, if you see in the north, it is little different because there it is more in terms of the politically identifying oneself as a Buddhist. So there is this uh, difference that we have in the north and the south. And in 2000, I felt there is some way we have to find a way where we could develop our own tradition of practicing Buddhism. And I was looking for several leaders who understand the Buddhist teachings to the core, at the same time understand the intricacies that we have in our Indian society, especially the social stratification we have in our society. And that was the time I got inspired by two great leaders. One is Buddha Rakita, the founder of the Mahabodhi Society, the other being Venerable Sangharakshita. Buddha Rakita was the first monk to establish the order, the practice of order among the monks in Bangalore, and then they, Bangalore is the name of a city in south of India, and then they spread over to different states. Uh, and Sangharakshita was the first to establish the order, the community, for the lay Buddhists. So obviously I, don't, I didn't want to become a monk, I, I, was, I felt like among being a lay Buddhist, how can I take Buddhism, how can I practice the Buddha Dhamma, uh, and also spread the Buddha Dhamma. Because on the one side I felt that there is a huge amount of responsibility in terms of uh, what we call as uh, taking responsibilities for compassionate action. And on the other hand, we also have to take responsibility for enhancing and spreading the teachings, the spiritual teaching, teachings of the Buddha Dhamma. And that's the reason why I established with few leaders two organizations, one in the name of Foundation of His Sacred Majesty, which though has a great, immense influence of the Buddhist teachings, but when it works, it works in secular values, because we wanted to also work with people from different communities, such as Islamic population, Christian population, or Sikh population, or the minority, uh, or the indigenous communities as well. And on the other front, we started what is called as a Tamil Buddhist society, and we felt that through Tamil Buddhist society, we would do all kinds of Buddhist activities in terms of teachings and also helping people to embrace Buddhism. So this is how we started working in, in these two aspects. On the other front, uh, one of the uh, reasons why we also believe in Dr. V Dr. Ambedkar's version of uh, Buddhism is also because of his deep understanding about the Indian society. Uh, very interesting that uh, he came with this slogan called 
educate, agitate and organize. Uh, everywhere we have this, whomso represents the untouchable community, will have this slogan being encarved in, in, their, in their houses. Educate, agitate, organize. So uh, I was wondering, when you know, before introducing myself, uh, getting introduced to the Buddhist teachings, I've thought that education means completing your uh, school graduation and you know, getting into a job. And then the second aspect to agitate, meaning protest. And then organize. I felt that those who agitate should develop an organization. You know? So that was my limited understanding. But there was a spiritual uh, recognition of these terms. Um, uh, when he said education, it means awakening. And when he said agitation, it means the mind that has to agitate, that has to cultivate reasoning in order to embrace what we call as compassion. And the third one is very interesting for me because I was not able to get the uh, appropriate meaning. Uh, he, when he used organize, I could not understand. But from, a, uh, from uh, the place where I studied, I studied my sociology in my graduation. Uh, in sociology, we use this term called organize. Organize means consciousness of kind. And this term called consciousness of kind is also coined by an American sociologist called Franklin Giddens. And he explains what is called as consciousness of kind as shared moral actions. So our teaching of the Buddha Dhamma starts with Sila Samadhi Pragya. So we begin with the teachings of the Sila. And among the Dalits, you'll find tremendous amount of influence of practicing the Sila. And uh, when, he, when uh, uh, Gautama is saying Sila or Sila, uh, that's that's the term for precepts and uh, moral ethical conduct. I'm sorry, I'm using Pali terms. Uh, Many so, of them know, but not everyone. Right. Okay. So uh, uh, one of the uh, reasons that we also embrace Buddhism is also to uh, accept the path of nonviolence, because yeah, uh, when people ask, "Why do you need to convert?" You know, why can't you be just be a Hindu and, and, and practice? So we tend to tell people that uh, you cannot have violence and non-violence together. So we believe that structural violence and peace cannot march together. And that's the reason why we embrace Buddhism. So when we say conversion, it means from violence to non-violence. When we say conversion, it means that from corruption to generosity. When we say Conversion, we mean that we will refrain ourselves from sexual misconduct and have a simplicity life. So this is what for us conversion means. So I felt that this is the best path that we all have embraced. And I also felt that there is a need for us to develop a Sangha. And that was a time when I was introduced to great leaders from the Tri Ratna Buddhist community of the UK. So in India, among the lay Buddhist societies, Tri Ratna Buddhist community is the largest. It, uh, it, I would say it is one of the uh, very well-established organizations that has, been, uh, that has been dedicating its life for the upliftment of the Dalit community and also help them to uh, spiritually empower them. So this is the broad introduction and the activities that I'm engaged in. And I'm more interested to receive questions from you and listen patiently uh, what you feel about India or whether you have any specific questions that you could address that to me will be of a great help for us.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, so anything you want to know about the Dali uh, life or what, uh, what uh, Gautam's work is and how he, he works with uh, those populations? Um, so my question is, uh, how does it all translate into daily life? Like, what does it look like? Uh, you mentioned in the past um, the Dalits lived separate from the main village, and it, it just sounds like they're ostracized and and maybe have fewer economic options. And, like, that's just, you know, my my feeling of what I think that they have to go through. So can you do like a before and after kind of like is is it are they accepted in the general population more because of what you do and are they feeling better because of what you do like can you tell us before and after kind of how it looks sure thank you very much uh, very interesting uh, when dr ambedkar drafted the indian constitution uh, one of the important aspects that dr ambedkar i would say he used perhaps two strategies uh, for helping our society to progress is drafting of the constitution and giving people Buddha and his Dhamma. Uh, by constitution, I see I don't see that as just as a straight instrument. It is uh, I would say it is it is something that is worked as what we call as the distributive justice. Uh, through constitution, we are trying to protect the rights of the former untouchables, because. Article 17 gives a right for anyone to question anyone in terms of somebody imposing the practice of untouchability. So Article 17 abolishes untouchability. So, uh, you know, all send, uh, it's all written in real practice. It's really tough, you know. Uh, discrimination is happening in every state of India. The only thing is, the discrimination that takes place in urban areas is are different from that of rural areas. If you see in rural areas, we have Dalit villages, you know. So we have separate villages. Even the churches, it's very interesting. You you see the churches, you will have Dalit churches as well. So earlier inside the church, the Dalits were asked to sit separately. Now you have Dalit churches. So it is very a uh, very difficult situation that the Dalits are facing. And there are so many human rights organizations which are working for the upliftment and empowerment of the Dalit community. It's a challenging task for all of us. And, you know, we believe in intercaste marriages. We, we felt that the best way to break this caste system is basically to get married. But what is happening is, uh, you know, the, the dominant caste have innovative ways of practicing untouchability and violence. One of the innovations that they have created is what is called as honor killing. You know, so if a Dalit boy gets married to a dominant caste girl, then he will be killed. So it's an honor to the community. So that's one of the uh, recent phenomena you have in our in our country. You can just Google and find out what is honor killing. You'll have plenty of case studies about each and every state in India. So that's the extreme part, and there are people who are also giving their life and energy for the upliftment of the Dalit community by addressing their rights in the courts and also uh, in the assembly and, and in the parliament. So it's a long journey for us to go because what we, saw, what we are talking is 3,000 years of oppression cannot vanish within a year or two. So it, it's a gradual process that we see. On the other front, 
the, the, how, how the Dalits see the problem as, before embracing Buddhism, they believed that they are weak. They believed that they are low. They, feel, they felt that they have been cursed. But after embracing Buddhism, it's totally changed. It has totally changed. It has empowered their mind. You will find the children really, really far ahead. And most of the uh, second generation Buddhists you will find in a very good position. They have all, uh, with the help of education, they have all come up in their life. So that inspiration came from Buddhism. Because Buddhism, Buddha thought about equality. One of the greatest verses that we have in the Theravadian text is Charaka Bhikkhve Charitam Bhaujana Hitaya Bhaujana Sukhaya Lokanu Kampaya Hataya Hitaya Dev Manasanam So he says to the, Buddha says to the, when, when he was giving the first discourses in Sarnath, so was, he was talking to the 60 uh, monks and he said that no monk to, should go together. I mean, no two monks should go together. So everybody were like spreading. And when they were spreading, he also said, Bahujana Hitaya, Bahujana Sukhaya. Work for the majority who is in suffering. So when he said suffering, he also addressed the issues of the lower caste. And he said that you have to uplift. Only when you uplift, there will be balance in the society. There will be peace in society. And that's why he said, Lokano Kampaya Hatai Devanasana. So that was a very liberating message for us to embrace Buddhism. And that, these are the key terms that uh, the Buddhists have uh, started following in their day-to-day life. One, that it is non-violent. At the same time, it is self-empowering. So there's a huge uh, transformation in the lives of uh, the former untouchables after embracing Buddhism. Uh, a couple of questions that, uh, that I have. Uh, one is that um, you said D- Dr. Ambedkar helped write the Indian Constitution. So this is, and this is the Constitution the whole country goes by. Right. So this same man who helped write the Constitution also was key in helping bring bring about a, a way out for the for the untouchables, right. for the Dalits. Right. You know, it's it's uh, uh, that, that's that's quite a uh, quite a special position that he holds, and and one of the sadnesses, as you were saying this uh, to me today, is uh, that after this conversion, he was he died like a month later, uh, which is so unfortunate because here was this ins- inspirational figure, uh, and and so the leadership wasn't there for a while. I'm curious, how many people, how many Dalits are there in India altogether? It is actually a very big question, James, because <laughs> uh, quite complicated. I would have to say this because uh, when the first census was taken in the year 1881, uh, it was quite interesting because we had the category of Christians, and then it was taken by the British government basically. So when the British government classified, they classified as uh, the few population of Christians, and then you have the population of the Mohammedans, which is the Islamic population. Then there was a third category, which was called as Brahmanism. The fourth one is the category of the untouchables. There was nothing called Hinduism. And in fact, uh, when the first uh, Chicago conference uh, where um, uh, Vivekananda attended in 1863. that was. Yeah, something like that. So in that, the classification is Brahmanism. Now the point is, this untouchable community was a huge community. It's, a, it's the majority, right? Majority in terms of the population. Now, 
when the Brahmins, who represented the Indian national movement, when they were uh, fighting for independence, the British has said that you are just a minority population, you are just 4 to 5% of the total population, why do you seek independence? The, the majority is still, you know, aspire to stay, be part of the British government, the British Indian government, you know. So, in 1891, the Brahmins amalgamated and included the whole untouchable community under the fold of Hinduism. So this coinage of what we call as Hinduism came from 1891 politically. Now, this untouchable community were all called as in different terms. You know, by saying Buddhist, it's just an Anglican term. It's a British term for us, you know. Way back 200 years or 300 years, we don't know what Buddhists call themselves as. Because it depends from uh, one region to another region. Some people call themselves as Dhammika. Some people uh, felt that they should be called as Dhammaviharis. So every region had its own nomenclature of addressing the Buddhists. Now this term called Buddhist was coined only in the 19th century among the British for us. So this classification of untouchables who were all the former Buddhists were brought under the category of Hinduism. And that's why whenever I'm in India, whenever I, when I'm on a public discourse, I ask this question that why you call yourself as a Christian? A Christian claims himself as a Christian and he has a right to claim that he is a Christian because of the fact that he has access for Bible and he has access for the church. The Muslims will claim themselves as Muslims because they have access for mosque, they have access for Quran. But if you ask a Hindu, except for the Brahmins, the others, that is the non-Brahmins, if you ask them why you are a Hindu, he will be clueless because he was being termed as Hindus by the political uh, uh, aspect of the society. I mean, that, that is the those who were ruling the government, they put the term called Hindus upon us. Actually, we are not Hindus because we have no access for the Hindu temples. We have no access for the teachings of the uh, Hindu sacred texts like Vedas or Puranas. You, you, you ask anyone, they will be clueless about what is written in Puranas or Shastras or Smritis or, or Upanishads or, in, in, or any kind of Vedas for that matter. So this is the uh, uh, system that we are talking about, how ironical it is. And then, very recently, like I would say last 30 years, we have been Hinduized. If you ask me, I have never come across anything of uh, Hindu nature in my childhood or even my parents. We are clueless about what Hinduism is. But we have been coined. Even the indigenous communities, even the indigenous communities are termed as Hindus. The northeast of India, which is close to Myanmar, are termed as Hindus. They are absolutely, there is no connection for the northeast uh, to the mainland India. You know. So this is the problem that we are seeing in terms of identifying oneself as a Hindu. It's very difficult. So if, if you include those aspects, I would say the population of the, the uh, untouchable community is the majority. It's definitely more than 50% of the population. But if you involve, there is another category called the backward class community, which is in the social stratification in a slightly higher position. If you involve these two, then these two become the majority. It is like almost 70% of the whole population of the country. And we are talking about population in terms of 107 crores, or I would say like 1.7 billion. It's a huge population.
Oh, hello. I'm wondering if you can very briefly outline what has happened. A little louder. Happened, a little louder. Uh, if you can briefly outline what has happened to the Dalits and, and the untouchables, let's say since Indian independence, because they're still in very uh, distressed circumstances. And is the Internet changing things rapidly for them? Because we can see that no repressive government will be able to stand probably as we go forward in human evolution because of the power given to people through uh, the Internet and technology. Is anything happening now for them uh, through that? Definitely. Uh, the first question uh, was post-independence, you mean, right? The plight of the Dalits post-independence, right? Yes, okay. yes. Uh, uh, definitely uh, there is a huge amount of change, uh, especially after the constitution was enacted. And our constitution is so unique because we have taken most of the extracts from American constitution. And we have constitution uh, that has been taken from Germany, we have Britain, so all, it's, it's a very good thesis. I would say it's the best. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is, actually. So, <laughs> uh, as, as a student of law, I'm also an advocate, so I definitely can uh, argue on that. <laughs> so, uh, constitutional right is one, but the state machinery that has to implement uh, what is there in the Constitution is the place where we are having this uh, imbalances because country is, our country is controlled by the dominant caste. So obviously the policies would not be framed in such a manner that there will be a sustainable development aspect. Definitely, you know, uh, we have a problem in that. And most of the development projects that we see in India, uh, you will find all the big projects that, that comes out Will, will, on the one hand, the Indian government will say uh, that the economy will prosper because of these projects. On the other hand, such projects, such huge mega projects, will also destroy the livelihoods of the indigenous community and the Dalit community. This is throughout the history for the last 60 years that we have seen since the independence. So there is this problem, and we have been, uh, the Buddhists especially have been taking huge amount of leadership in addressing this issue in a very non-violent way. I would say that, you know, the, the, the Indians, if you say any kind of uh, agitations that we see is in terms of intolerance. Uh, you, you, have, you might have heard about the Hindu-Muslim riots or any other religious riots that you have, uh, you have uh, heard of in the papers. But you won't find Dalits committing any atrocities. We, I, I don't understand because I'm also a student of anthropology and I really don't understand that the, why the Dalits are not retaliating. Because I find that, that their uh, cultural ethos are closely connected with Buddhism. And that's the reason why they are not uh, retaliating. They always believe in dialogue. They always believe that there is another way to handle uh, uh, you know, the, the social stratification. So what we see in terms of governance and in terms of the policies... If you see these two together, in terms of the Dalit perspective, it is definitely challenging. And we have a long way to go in terms of literacy, in terms of education, in terms of livelihood. You know, it's very interesting. You, you have the, the symmetries, right? In, in India, we are, we are divided even in symmetries. The Dalits are not allowed to uh, bury their bodies in, 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 in the dominant caste villages, you know. 
So even after the death, we are not treated equals. So that's the kind of challenges which we are having. So we have to look for a separate, uh, in a symmetry. So we have been fighting with the government that we also need Dalit symmetries. You know, because, you know, it's really difficult for us. It's very, very difficult. I'm not trying to generalize or I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to romanticize the whole issue. But the thing is, this is the plight of Dalits. And we are in 2017 and they call India as incredible India. <laughs> it is certainly incredible because we've been practicing this structural violence for, uh, for 3,000 years and we are still finding innovative ways of, you know, following this. So it's really uh, a tough uh, task for us, in front of us. What was the second one? The internet. Oh, the internet. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's very important, actually, for us. Internet is very, very important for us, keeping aside the Facebook <laughs> issues. <laughs> uh, what we saw as in, in internet is uh, expressing our voice, because the mainstream media ignored our news. I was quite impressed when I was in San Diego. I, uh, I read one of the newspapers, and in the front page, you have news about Afro-Americans. We don't have that. We don't have that. You would not find uh, the news of the Dalits in the first page. You know? So the mainstream media have ignored. The researchers in the mainstream have ignored. The parliament does not discuss. So then, how will I express, you know, how would I express the plight of the Dalits? I find internet is the best way. So YouTube and, and, and writing our own articles in, in different, different websites, I think that's like an immense amount of empowerment. That's how we, we were able to communicate to people from different, different countries, and especially those who are working on human rights issues. I think internet is a great uh, tool for us to get empowered at least to articulate the problems that we have in Indian society. How do you, how do you explain the tragedy of Buddhists in Myanmar committing genocide against the Rohingyas? Uh, this was the question which was asked to me in Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, one of the Christian brothers was asking this question, that how do you, how do you uh, identify yourself as a Buddhist in comparison with the atrocities that is taking place in Myanmar and that took place in Sri Lanka as well? So I gave a very simple answer, that in Myanmar, I'm a Muslim. In Sri Lanka, I'm a Hindu. By saying this, I mean to say that I represent anything that is representing compassion. So the identity of the Buddhist is not calling oneself as Buddhist. It is the identification of loving kindness and compassion. So if our brothers and sisters in Myanmar, among the Muslim community, represent compassion and loving kindness, I would call them as Buddhist. The Buddhist, the so-called Buddhist in Myanmar that we see in Myanmar, or, or, or that, uh, for that matter in Sri Lanka, I don't uh, associate myself uh, with them as as my own Buddhist brothers. Of course, for me, you know, unconditional love is there, even for the oppressors. But it's extremely ignorant. You cannot subscribe to the value of violence. What uh, what has been subscribed in Myanmar among the Buddhists and in Sri Lanka is that they have subscribed to the path of violence. They have set up their own uh, established parties that articulate the idea of attacking. You know, 
So that is the level of uh, uh, practice these ignorant monks are having. But that doesn't mean that in Myanmar all the Buddhists are like that or, you know, same in the case of Sri Lanka. People are very good actually in Myanmar as well as in Sri Lanka. One of the greatest things that I observed in Sri Lanka is I was out of curiosity after the war. I, I went before the war and even after the war. The war took place in 2009. And uh, when I was talking to the Tamilians, the Tamil ethnic group, they're very kind. So immediate attachment, oh, you know, seeing the plight of the ethnic uh, atrocities, atrocities that is committed against this ethnic population was extremely beautiful. On the other front, I was like wondering how the Sinhalese communities are. They are extremely compassionate. They are also kind. But somewhere the problem lies with the politics, you know. The people who hold the political system are those who are responsible for such kinds of atrocities and violent acts. You know. So that is how I see this whole problem as. There are wise, wise leaders in, in every spiritual tradition and ignorant members in every spiritual tradition. Yeah. I wonder um, in the last uh, last moments if you uh, before we close if you want to share some uh, social engaged uh, project that uh, that you do just to give a sense of the, the kind of work that uh, that you do there. Right. Um. In India, we have social movements and environment movements. It's very interesting. You talk to the environment uh, movement activists, they will not talk about social equality. Okay? They will just adhere their principles only with environment because they think that human beings are different and environment is different. You know? And you talk to the uh, people who are activists working for social movement, for them everything is with people and nature has nothing to do. You know? There is no dialogue. So our foundation is one of the rarest foundations that blends these two. We feel that people have to be conscientized in terms of their social responsibility and environment sensibility. So both these, things, these two things should go hand in hand. And for this matter, we felt that among the uh, uh, members of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, we deeply felt that we need to redefine our own temple practices in terms of connecting the teachings of the Buddha Dhamma with that of the reality in terms of social responsibility as well as the environment sensibility. So in my state, I'm establishing the first Buddhist temple. The first Buddhist temple, and it's going to be an eco-temple. And this eco-temple, the main uh, objective of establishing this eco-temple is basically <clears throat> to impart teachings on environment principles, as well as social values. So when I say social values, we will be primarily working to eradicate what is called as the graded inequality called caste system. In environment sensibility, we talk in terms of what we need to uh, uh, inculcate and embrace impermanence. So I see uh, the environment activists should imbibe the value of impermanence and address the issue of sustainability. So the temple will be primarily focusing on these two activities. So I'm traveling different, to different, different countries talking about uh, the eco-temple project that we are deeply involved at. And it's very interesting that uh, in the whole of India, we, uh, in my state, we don't have a Buddhist temple. We have small, small chapters 
and uh, we most often uh, reserve ourselves in, in, in the houses of our Buddhist friends. So we have small, small activities going on. But we don't have such a big space where we could deliver discourses on, on uh, Dhammic practices and also organize retreats. This is one of the limitations that we are having. And that's the reason why we felt that uh, we know we should have our own temple. So, and, th- and this is in Chennai? Uh, this is in a place where it is geographically connected to Chennai, Bangalore, and Pondicherry. And these are three states in South India. Mm-hmm. And from Chennai, it's about uh, 200 miles uh, towards the northwest. And so you've been raising money for, for yes. that for a while. Honey. Yes, I've been traveling and I've been talking. I, the most important thing for me, more than money, is raising friends. So I'm here to, uh, not for fundraising, but friend raising. <laughs> That's right. So for me, your spiritual integrity and solidarity is more important. I mean, funds will come, but then I feel that the most important thing is subscription of values, what we represent and how you could partner as a friend. Well, um, it's uh, it's. Good to have you as a friend, <laughs> and uh, and thank you so much for the the work that you're doing there and in India and uh, throughout the world. And um, so many people are are being supported by your your vision. It's really wonderful. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm. Thanks for your patience. So I uh, will close with a, a short metta, um, and you can just uh, bring anyone into your mind, in your heart. You want to send healing energy to. And then to send some thoughts of metta, loving kindness towards yourself. Appreciate your own connection and love of the Dharma, the truth. And then sharing that with everyone here and sending it out to all beings in all directions. May all know true happiness and peace. May all be free of confusion and suffering. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gautam. Blessings on your work. Okay, so have a good week. Uh, next week with Della, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.